Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I am Monish Rath here at Keller & Heckman, and we are coming to you from our offices in Washington, D.C., and we're grateful to all of you for joining us. We have a great program today. And uh, right now, if you are still dialing in, don't forget that audio and video of the slides are uh, come to you from different uh, sources. You have to dial in at 1-800-768-2983, and the access code is 434-4318 to get in, and the slides are available by web. So thank you all for joining. I wanted to give you all a minute to finish doing that. Uh, we have a great topic today. The topic today is the uh, fate of the 180-day enforcement limit. In the OSH Act, there is a six-month limit on uh, issuance of citations. And we're going to talk about that today in light of some, I think, rather dramatic changes in the past two or three months. Uh, indeed, even today as we speak, uh, changes are afoot to this rule. And, and I think it's in incredibly important for every employer who has to manage OSHA compliance to talk about this. Uh, development. With that said, uh, as I said before, I am Manish Rath here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today by one of my colleagues, Javane Nakumaram. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Javane. I'm really grateful that you're participating in this OSHA 3030. It's your first time on the OSHA 3030, so this is your, your rookie debut. That's right. That's right. Um, in my previous job, I actually watched the OSHA 3030 webinars frequently and used this as a resource. So I'm looking forward to being on the other side as a co-presenter today. Well, well, welcome aboard, and thank you very much for your, your participation and in your hard work in, in bringing this particular program uh, to, to be put on today. So with that said, uh, for those of you who are tuning in for the first time uh, to the OSHA 3030, this is a program that we do about every 30 days. We try and cover a topic in about 30 minutes, and we pick topics that are impactful developments in OSHA law that have arisen sometime recently than in the last few months. Uh, with that said, after the program, for those of you or your colleagues who have missed a program, you can always catch it on our website. We put not only the slides, but the slides and the sound on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. So we've been doing this for, we're in our fifth calendar year, so slightly over four years' worth of materials are all at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. A lot of great topics we've covered over the years. So if you want to get any backlogged education on OSHA law, that's a fantastic source for uh, educational material. Uh, Let's go ahead and get into it. Let's talk about what we're going to discuss today. The, the, the storyline starts with a decision coming out of the D.C. Circuit called uh, the Volks decision. And uh, from there, we're, we're going to cover that decision so that everyone's caught up. Uh, another case came out recently in light of the Volks decision called DELEC Refining. We'll talk about that real briefly. Uh, OSHA, in light of the rule of the decision from the court, decided to go through rulemaking and make changes to the rule. And, and then finally, as we always do, we'll leave you with practical takeaway items as to what employers should do in light of these developments. So with that said, let me take you to the beginning. To understand the developments relating to the 180-day statute of limitations, I think it's important to start with the Occupational Safety and Health Act itself. 
Section 8 of the Act. This is the Act. This is the statute that Congress enacted in 1970. So it is the uh, fountainhead of all OSHA law that comes from that. Everything else, the regulations, enforcement guidelines, etc., that's all just interpretation of this Act. And the Act itself, in Section 8, requires employers to make, keep, preserve records regarding their activities. And flowing from that, OSHA issued a standard called uh, Section 1904, the record-keeping rule. And the record-keeping rule fleshes out that Section 8 of the Act a little more, and it goes into the particulars of recording injuries and illnesses in, for example, the Form OSHA 300 law, injury and illness record-keeping log. Uh, Section 9C of the Act specifically says that no citation may be issued under this section after the expiration of six months following the occurrence of any violation. And I want to point out a few words in here that do not, to me, seem discretionary. They seem rather cut and dried. For one, they say no citation may be issued. That, to me, seems rather a mandatory circumscription of OSHA powers, the agency's powers. No citation may be issued under this section after the expiration of six months following the occurrence of any violation. The other word I guess I would want to point out is following the occurrence of any violation. Uh, occurrence seems to me to be uh, find itself, this innocent word, finds itself now at the center of all of this debate. Well, so we talked about Section 1904, the record-keeping rule, and it amongst many other things, requires employers to record all injuries and illnesses within seven days of the moment at which the employer has knowledge of an injury or illness and must record that in, amongst other places, the OSHA Form 300, the OSHA 300, and must preserve those records for a period of five years from the end of the year in which the occurrence uh, happened. So let's say, for example, there was a uh, injury on January 1 to make things easy. And the employer has to enter into the Form 300, into the OSHA 300, by January 8th, I would think. Uh, let's say that happened in this year. By the end of this year, plus five years, the employer must preserve that record. So essentially six years, considering, and that's why I gave an example that starts on January 1, that is a, essentially a six-year requirement to keep that particular data entry. All right. So this is all just to give you some background law so that you understand the developments or better understand the developments that we're about to talk about. In April of 2002, the D.C. Circuit Court issued a decision uh, in the Volks case. Now, let me take you back to the underlying OSHA citation. In May of 2006, OSHA conducted an inspection of uh, an employer called AKM, uh, known as better as Volks Constructors. And when they conducted the inspection, amongst other things, they looked at OSHA's record-keeping data. They looked for their record-keeping records. And what they noticed was a host of errors or omissions that they alleged. In some cases, they alleged missing entries in the Form 300. Uh, at the end of the year, they noted, at least in one year, that the wrong person 
had certified the uh, the summary. That has to be done by the uh, the highest person responsible. Uh, there were other similar types of alleged errors or omissions. All in all, uh, 67 violations that they noticed going back several years, over several years of records. The oldest of the violations was about four and a half years old at the time that OSHA examined the records. And the most recent of the violations they had noted was no more recent than six months and 10 days. In other words, all 67 violations were more than six months old. OSHA issued a host of citation items for alleged violations of the record-keeping standard. I want to point out that the citations they issued were for failure to enter records uh, for an injury or an illness within seven days of the occurrence. What they did not do was issue a citation for failure to preserve those records for five years. Javin, I think it's pretty clear why they didn't cite a failure to save the record for five years. The employer had the records. They're just records that had omissions or errors. Right. That's right. And so if OSHA could have, do you think they would have issued a, a citation under this subsection instead? I think if they had the opportunity, I think if the facts were different, they could have been able to cite them under the different section, and then maybe they wouldn't have gotten to so much, much complications throughout the case. Yeah. So, ongoing so, violations. Yeah, I think so. Maybe an example would be they had records for four years ago, three years ago, but not two years ago. They were missing, right. maybe. Okay. So, so I think that's an important point. We are simply discussing a failure to enter a record for an injury or illness. That's what those omissions OSHA alleged constitute. Uh, so with that said, Volks contests the citation. It goes before an administrative law judge. Then it goes to the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, an independent agency. The Review Commission agreed with OSHA that, well, essentially, let me back up and say that Volks argued we shouldn't be issued citations for these alleged omissions because they were outside of the six months statute of limitations in the OSHA Act. OSHA said, well, no, wait a minute. These were continuing violations. If you didn't enter the uh, fact or existence of an injury or illness in the first seven days, but you caught it on day eight, then you should have reported on day eight. If you had caught it a year later or two or three years later, you should have entered that data, corrected it, and you never did. Those omissions persisted until the date that we conduct our investigation and examine those records. And so the violation continued. These were ongoing violations. Every day that you didn't correct it, the violation was still there. It was still an omission. And because the, the omission was still there, that's a continuing violation that we can cite any time from six months after the date that there's still a violation. So we're well within our statute of limitations, OSHA argued. The Review Commission agreed with OSHA and said, yeah, these are ongoing violations because they were never corrected and the statute of limitations is a non-issue. So let's just get to the substantive merits of whether there was, in fact, a violation. Volks challenged this up to the D.C., uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Circuit of the District of Columbia, otherwise known as the D.C. Circuit. And the D.C. Circuit disagreed with OSHA and the Review Commission, by extension, and said, no, we think that there's a statute of limitations here that is pretty clear. When they say that in the Act, 
when Congress says that uh, OSHA shall issue a citation within six months of an occurrence, the word occurrence is clear. There's no ambiguity that OSHA gets to interpret. Really, this goes to the question of how much deference should the court afford to the agency when the agency says an occurrence is still an occurrence if it's never been corrected. It's an ongoing violation. And we're the agency, so we get to interpret our own rule, and you, you the court, has to defer to our interpretation. The court said, yeah, yeah, under Chevron, that might have been the case uh, if, indeed, there was an ambiguity that you were clarifying. But when you look at the act and the word occurrence, we think this is clear and unambiguous. We think that occurrence refers to a discrete event. It's a discrete event. It means something that happened. An occurrence, in the common definition of the word occurrence, is an event that happened. And one more thing the court said, when you look at that seven-day deadline, it's very clear now that that must be what OSHA meant, uh, what Congress meant, and that what OSHA thought it meant. Because when you have a deadline that an employer must enter a data entry item within seven days after an occurrence, then OSHA itself, in promulgating the standard, clearly believed that this was a discrete moment of compliance that had to happen within seven days. That after that, there was no continuing uh, violation. That's the District of uh, Columbia Circuit opinion. Uh, it's referred to as Volks too, and I'll tell you, I think that's an oddity in nomenclature. Uh, they're referring to Volks one as the Review Commission decision uh, itself. So, so Javine, OSHA didn't really like getting handed by the courts a decision that went against them on something that I think that they thought was pretty important to them. That's right, Manish. They, uh, in response to this adverse decision from the DC court, uh, the DC Circuit, they responded with uh, promulgating a regulation so they could essentially use the ongoing violation interpretation and issue citations for record-keeping violations for up to five and a half years after the violation occurred. And so uh, the timeline here uh, goes through the, the regulatory process, but essentially in 2013, OSHA proposed this record-keeping rule that, quote, clarifies the employer's continuing obligation to make and maintain accurate records of recordable injuries and illnesses. This rule was finalized in December uh, 2016 and went into effect in January this year, so it's in effect now. So right after this rule was finalized, in fact, another circuit court actually agreed with the Volks case by rejecting OSHA's ongoing violations theory, and so that's the Delic Refining case. So yeah, Delic Refining was an interesting case. It, you know, when we first talked about the Volks rule, I had opined that this isn't just limited to record keeping. This could be expanded to other let's say, uh, discrete requirements, discrete meaning temporally, discrete requirements to do something involving paperwork. Uh, and I thought at the time that, you know, the, the PSM rule has a process hazard analysis and there are other uh, hazard analysis requirements elsewhere in the CFR for OSHA standards that to me seemed like the best examples of how the Volks rule could have been expanded. And here we have Dalek refining that came out uh, just a few months ago, and essentially the review commission uh, said, "Look, if you uh, if you have to expand Volks, the process hazard analysis, 
uh, is a good example of where, and the Fifth Circuit, in fact, applied this concept to the process of hazard analysis in the PSM rule, process safety management rule. What they essentially said was, this is a discrete requirement. If you omitted something in the process hazard analysis, you didn't have this ongoing violation for years afterwards. That's right. Uh, the violations alleged here were failure to promptly address recommendations identified in the process hazard analysis. So in this case, if OSHA were to have prevailed on an ongoing violation theory, that would mean that OSHA could issue a citation in perpetuity because there is no time limit. They could have issued a citation for a failure to address recommendations that occurred 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So that is why the Fifth Circuit rejected the ongoing violation argument. They were saying, once again, uh, the occurrence of the violation was when Delic did not prop promptly address the PHA recommendations. So it's not that OSHA can issue a citation for any t at any time after that occurred. That's a great point, Javanay. I think that that's even more expansive than a mere omission in the process hazard analysis itself, because you could argue uh, more compellingly in the case of the PSM standard that they could have taken follow-up actions at any time, but the Fifth Circuit still decided that that was a discrete moment of violation rather than an ongoing violation. Mm -hmm. A great point. So, as you say, Javanay, the agency, not liking this decision, went back to the drawing board and said, well, look, if the courts aren't going to take our interpretation as gospel, then we can go through proper rulemaking and promulgate a rule. That was OSHA's thinking. And so they did indeed, and they've published the rule. It's now a final rule, and it's in effect. And, uh, Javanese, as you say, there's two really critical components to this rule. One, they say that employers now have to maintain accurate records for five years. You will note, those of you who are listening carefully at the beginning of this program, and there may not be many, but if you're still if you're still with me, the accurate records was not a part of it. Merely, the the prior record keeping rule said that the employer had to maintain records for five years. Mm -hmm. The fundamental change is that now employers must maintain accurate records for five years. And the other thing that the new rule says is the employer has a duty to record injuries and illnesses, and this is essentially an ongoing obligation. You must always record an injury or illness, even if you didn't do so in the first seven days. Uh, there's a third point, and that's that not only must the employer maintain an accurate record, but when OSHA comes around and conducts an inspection and asks for your injury and illness-keeping records, the employer must now provide accurate records upon request. I think that that is practically speaking, impossible to comply with if indeed there's an inaccuracy in the record. Now what OSHA is saying is even if there was an inaccuracy in the record, the moment you pull it out of your filing cabinet and provide it to us, it has to be accurate. Well, impractical or unrealistic or not, those are three critical elements to this new rule, which, Javan, as you say, became effective in January of this year. That's right. It became effective January 18th. And I will note that it is OSHA's position that this has always been their interpretation of the record-keeping rule, that this regulation is just clarifying their longstanding position and returns them to their standard practice. But as you indicated, there are some important uh, distinctions and important changes in this final rule. So we'll have to see 
um, you know, as this process goes along, we'll have to see if uh, anything, if this truly is a departure from OSHA's former practices or if this really is uh, clarifying their longstanding position. And OSHA also argues that they have the authority to do this because they argue Congress acknowledged that accurate injury and illness records are critical to safety programs and that they have the broad authority to enact record-keeping regulations. I I personally don't share the view that they have put out there in this new rule for two reasons. One, I think the most important reason is, look, the court was interpreting a statement from the statutes. And so now you have a judicial interpretation of what Congress meant. Now the agency can't go back to rulemaking, uh, which is merely an interpretation of the statute in derogation of what the court has said Congress meant. So I don't think rulemaking is a fix for a federal court opinion. Uh, the second concern I have is he seems to be walking a tightrope, the Assistant Secretary of uh, Labor for OSHA, when he says this is merely a clarification of 40 years of practice. Because if indeed that's true, well, his 40 years of practice have already been interpreted as violative of the statute by the D.C. Circuit and the Fifth Circuit. So he would have been better off, I think, by saying that this is not an interpretation of the past 40 years. This is a new rule in light of the court decision. Uh, but he didn't. He chose to say, no, this is a clarification of what we've always said. If I were the D.C. Circuit, I would say, well, if it's a clarification of what you've always said, then we've already spoken to it and told you that you're wrong. That's not what Congress wanted of you. Uh, in any event, I don't think that the court's decision is curable through rulemaking. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with that said, uh, that's where we are with this new rule. Uh, industry has some concerns with that idea that the agency can just go back and make a rule if they don't like a court decision. Interestingly, Congress is concerned about this as well. Yes, Manish. So this rule is obviously controversial and has received some criticism in the regulated community, so it has gotten the attention of Congress and this administration, and some historic congressional action may occur in response to this rulemaking within the next day or two. So Congress is considering a resolution, Resolution 83, to disapprove the rule. The text of the, of the resolution is on the slide, but they're essentially, what they're essentially trying to do is if passed, this resolution would nullify the record-keeping rule through a mechanism rarely used called the Congressional Review Act, or the CRA. So industry has gotten, uh, you know, congressional attention for this because they characterize this rule as a, as a concern because it could subject millions of small businesses to citations for paperwork violations but not improving worker health and safety. But then on the other side, you have other, uh, you know, other groups concerned about repealing the regulation, including uh, two former BLS commissioners who recently sent a letter to Congress urging uh, them to oppose the resolution out of concerns that it could have unintended consequences on the integrity of injury data. Yeah, they may be too late for that, Javanay. As, as you say, this is already quite well along in Congress right. under the Congressional Review Act. The House, has it was a joint resolution. The House has already passed it, uh, I think fairly commandingly, 231 to 191. Uh, but now it's up for the Senate. And as you say, Javanay, that I, I would have thought that they might have been able to sit on that issue today, but if not today, certainly, as you say, it could be tomorrow, but mm -hmm. very, very soon. Right. So it's a, a red-hot issue in terms of uh, of its currency. If the Senate passes it, now it's been passed by both 
houses. Mm -hmm. And then, as we all know from Schoolhouse Rock, it, it is left only to, uh, or law school, either way, uh, it's left only for, for the president to sign it or to let it sit, mm -hmm. and then it becomes a law. And you, you call it historic, and I think you're right. The Congressional Review Act uh, has only been effectively used, to my recollection, once before. There may be something else that I'm not aware of. It's been raised a few times, but successfully once. And, in fact, that was also an OSHA rule. Mm -hmm. That was ergonomics, uh, an issue that uh, came before Congress fully 17 years ago, so very, very close to the beginning of my 22-year career. One of the first things I was uh, highly involved in and, and central in and uh, that, that project, the ergonomics uh, rulemaking, I finished off by watching Congress strike it down mm -hmm. uh, through the use of the Congressional Review Act. And today or tomorrow could be the maybe second time ever since the enactment of the Congressional Review Act that it will get put to use. And it would be, in the case of this, what we call the Volks Rule, OSHA's Volks Rule. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Watch this channel uh, closely. And by, by this channel, I mean we, we will – Put it out on our Twitter uh, accounts, or uh, you're certainly welcome to contact us uh, if you want to know the outcome of that rule, of that uh, Congressional Review Act vote. And, Manish, one last thing I'll note is if this were to pass into law, the agency would also be barred from issuing another rule in substantially similar form. So this is a very powerful tool that Congress can use to address uh, the rulemaking. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It's one of the key features of the Congressional Review Act. Uh, meant to make sure that it's only used wisely because once they pass a uh, Congressional Review Act resolution, as you say, OSHA would not be able to pass a substantial rule, a substantially similar rule in the future. So nobody's filed suit on this rule yet uh, from industry, and I suspect that's because Congress has taken the torch up with the Congressional Review Act. But I do think that it's a possibility. It's a distinct possibility. Uh, after all, that is what DELEC refining is. Uh, but you could see a rule, uh, a legal challenge on the administrative rule if the Congressional Review Act, for whatever reason, does not strike it. Uh, with that said, let's talk about uh, one other thing that's, that's really essential to the 180-day limit, and that's the question of the discovery rule. There's really two ways OSHA could try and persuade a court to toll the 180-day statute of limitations. One is by characterizing a violation as an ongoing violation. The other is that OSHA could characterize the statute of limitations as something that could be told until such point as there's a uh, discovery of the violation or alleged violation. That That is something that's endemic in tort law. It's, it's sort of a, a well-established tort concept that your statute of limitations to sue in tort begins at the moment of injury or the moment of violation or the moment that you first discover that you have an injury. So agencies have applied that in an enforcement context for a long time. That's called casually the discovery rule. OSHA chose not to invoke the discovery rule in the Volks Constructors case, and the D.C. Circuit noted that they didn't raise it. They raised it before the ALJ, but they didn't raise the discovery rule before the Review Commission or in front of the D.C. Circuit. So the circuit had, I think, a more isolated issue to rule on, which is the other method for tolling statute limitations, this concept of an ongoing violation. And they 
I'd say rather clearly struck down the idea of an ongoing violation in the context of record keeping. So now we still have the question of the discovery rule, and I think it's an important one. OSHA addressed in its Volk's rule, in its final rule. It said uh, that the discovery rule is not needed in the case of record keeping because we're sticking to the idea that a omission or an error in record keeping is an ongoing violation. Uh, we can only speculate as to why they have abandoned the idea of the discovery rule. Uh, one reason may be that they believe that the ongoing violation concept is stronger for them. Uh, the other may be because a year after the Volk's decision came out, the Supreme Court issued a decision involving the Securities Exchange Commission and, in, and the, that agency's enforcement of a rule. That's right. The Supreme Court uh, discussed the discovery rule within the context of a government um, entity issuing a civil penalty. So this was Gabelli versus SEC, uh, decided in 2013. It, it really calls into question the uh, continued viability of this discovery rule doctrine. They, uh, so while this case involved an SEC fraud violation and not an OSHA record-keeping violation, it still is informative about how courts could be interpreting the discovery rule. So in that case, they they held that statute of limitations could not be told, uh, be, and, and specifically they were talking about how the, because this was a case of government enforcement for civil penalties, they say that the government, unlike private parties, is situated to investigate and uncover violations. So it's uh, they aren't it, it's not the same as a plaintiff uh, seeking compensation for injuries and then discovering an injury at a later time. So they they argue that the government's a different type of entity here where um, if they were to allow the government to issue citations upon discovery, then in, in theory, government uh, organizations could issue citations at any time for a violation. Whenever they come in to do an inspection, that is when they discover the violation, so that's when the period could pull. So as a matter of policy, Gabelli really questions uh, the idea of tolling the statute of limitations for the cases of um, the government issue, government enforcement, and that the uh, the theory should only be used for a limited number of circumstances and should be applied cautiously here. So, in light of that decision, it will be interesting to see how courts interpret the discovery rule if they if a case ever comes before them for a record keeping violation. I will note that the discovery rule has been used in the past to toll the statute of limitations for. OSHA reporting rules, and this would be this was a case that involved failure to report a fatality to OSHA, but that was a, a situation where um, the court viewed the failure to report to OSHA as a way to conceal or prevent discovery from the agency of discovering the rule, uh, the violation, whereas a record keeping uh, violation is different. So it's unclear how courts will be applying this to uh, similar record-keeping violations as occurred in bulk. We have a question that's come in from one of our listeners. We love the questions. Keep them coming, and whenever we don't have time for them, uh, you can reach out to us by email with your question after the program. But the question here is, uh, did I hear correctly that if uh, both houses pass the resolution and the president doesn't sign it, that it will still eventually become a law? Well, it's an arcane question, and I'll leave it to uh, constitutional lawyers to correct me if I'm wrong in my understanding, but if the president does not sign it and Congress is still in session, 
then it, yes, it becomes a law. If, con if the president does not sign it uh, and within 10 days Congress adjourns, then it does not become a law. No action is taken. That latter uh, possibility is called the pocket veto. My understanding is that by not signing it, he permits the con con congressional vote to become a law by inaction. Uh, but again, I invite anyone, since we're straying from labor, employment, wage hour, and OSHA law, I would certainly invite somebody else who has uh, more day-to-day -day familiarity to chime in if they, if they have a different explanation. With that said, let's talk, as we always do, about the practical implications of what employers should do, the takeaway items that you can walk away from this program with. Uh, of course, until the Congressional Review Act uh, resolution is passed and this rule is struck, which would be my prediction, uh, but it, if it is, then we can go back to the idea that was espoused by the D.C. Circuit, which is that an omission or error in the OSHA record-keeping logs is a discrete violation, and if left uncorrected, the 180 days starts to tick from the moment of the discrete occurrence. Uh, until then, certainly employers have to consider the possibility that record-keeping violations for the past five years could conceivably be citable by OSHA, or that the moment at which you hand an inaccurate record to an OSHA compliance officer is a moment of violation under the current rule. Uh, in either event, I think that good practice compels employers to consider cross-checking their injury and illness records at the end of a year against other data comp compilations uh, like workers' comp claims. Uh, lots of employers do it. They take a look at their workers' comp claims, they go back to their record-keeping uh, records and see whether there are any omissions that they can yield by cross-checking those. Uh, I would engage in training for your staff that's responsible for complying with the record-keeping rule, and I'd go one step further and say whatever training you've used for your staff, I would preserve records of those uh, training programs. I would also look when OSHA issues a citation at your organization, I would look carefully at whether or not the Volk's decision applies, not just for record keeping. I'm now talking about process hazard analysis or any other hazard analysis. You know, I, I can only speculate as to how wide the net is cast by the Volk's decision, whether or not it covers uh, maybe a, uh, the preliminary steps you would take for uh, fall protection, for PPE, et cetera, and for the documentation of what steps you took. Uh, in order to engage in a PPE program or fall protection or the entry of a confined space, uh, we can speculate, and I think that it's possible that certain record-keeping provisions of other standards, and I'm now not, not talking about the record-keeping rule, could be implicated under the uh, Volk's decision more broadly. And then finally, the last thing I'd say is, is over the next couple of days, uh, I think it's important to keep an eye on what happens with this Congressional Review Act bill and see how it turns out. Uh, with that said, I want to thank all of you for participating in the OSHA 3030, and I would ask one thing. We provide these programs, we put a lot of work into them and provide them for free to our client community and for those in the OSHA 3030 community. The only thing we ask in exchange as a registration fee is when you get this invitation by email for the next OSHA 3030, please forward it on to at least three of your colleagues. To, who aren't already getting the invitation to make sure that more people learn about the program. The OSHA 3030 is the lifeblood 
the, the new registrants are the lifeblood of the OSHA 3030 program, and we want to keep those new registrants coming. You can hear more about developments in this particular issue and other issues on our Twitter, on my Twitter account, at Rath Monish. Uh, we, we repost this program on our website at khlaw slash OSHA3030, and we also uh, have it put up as a podcast now, so you can get it on your favorite podcast service like iTunes, Podcast Addict, etc. Uh, and that's how I listen to it when I need to hear it again afterwards. Uh, I catch it on, on iTunes as a podcast. I've subscribed to the OSHA 3030. And we also have a program called the Tosca 3030, uh, which is also up as a podcast on my channel, the OSHA 3030 channel. Uh, and I hope you're linked in to not only Monash Raff uh, at LinkedIn, but also the Calvin Heckman Workplace Safety and Health Program. Our next program, April 26th uh, at 1 p.m., always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. We hope you mark your calendars and spread the word about the next date, April 26th, to three of your colleagues. Thank you all for listening. I want to thank my colleague, Javanay Nakumaram, for participating in this program. And we hope, Javanay, that you'll participate in future OSHA's 3030 uh, as a co-speaker, a co-presenter. And uh, I want to thank Karen Heckman and our marketing folk, including uh, Aaron Sipperly-Beck, uh, for, for their assistance in putting this forward, both as a webinar and in a couple of days uh, putting it up as a podcast. So thank you all. And until next time, April 26th, uh, I look forward to seeing you then, and stay safe.